Welcome to this week's FSF and Tapestry podcast. This week, the five members of the education team here discuss the new development matters and its potential impact on early years curriculum and pedagogy. If you enjoy this episode, please rate us and subscribe. So we wanted to talk a little bit about the new Development Matters document that's caused quite a stir. It's been out for a month or so. Um, and I thought it would be really helpful for our tapestry users or indeed our listeners to just think a little bit about the history of how it's come about and what we're doing at the Foundation Stage Forum and Tapestry to help practitioners get to know this document over the next year and how they might change their practice or not, as the case may be. So the document states that the EYFS is a distinct and important phase in education and it places equal priority on supporting children's social and emotional development and their learning. The old development matters did that too, didn't it? So I I think the the ethos, the overriding ethos of this new document is probably fairly similar. It's it's child-led. There's lots of new stuff about curriculum and pedagogy and so on, but I don't think it, it actually changes what, if I was still running my own nursery, what I'd be doing there with my staff and children would any of you agree or disagree I think that's right Helen I think if you were confident in your own practice and what you're doing in your nursery and what your team is doing then you just carry on doing that and it is there only as a guidance it's not statutory so you can dip in and out of it stick it in your back pocket um and and carry on doing the, the good stuff that you're already doing yeah I think so yeah, I think you're right in saying they look <clears throat> largely similar in their ethos, don't they? I mean, I'm I'm not first-hand familiar with any of the development matters being key stage, but you know, looking at both of them, they do seem very child-centered. That's the thing; it's putting the child first. The only difference is it's you know it looks very different, and the structure's different, and obviously the con some of the content's different, but at, at its heart. It's the same, you know. Yeah, and it, no single document can do everything, can it? It's not a curriculum. It's not a description of pedagogy. We need far more than just one document can do. Um, and and it's, I think there's a statement in there, something around this, this is not a single blueprint for the early years curriculum. In other words, what we want children to learn. I mean, I think back when I first started the nursery in 1999, we were then thinking, you know, long-term plans, medium-term plans, weekly plans. We didn't have any ticky-listy things in those days, I don't think, although they came in pretty soon afterwards. So it, we've already, always thought about a curriculum and what our plans for the children are and what we want them to learn. So I don't, I don't think that's changed particularly. I think one of the big changes people might notice, I suppose, is the um, the change to pathways and these broader age ranges. So you've got birth to three, three to four and reception. Um, and I think people people might feel that that's quite a big change, even though it won't necessarily need to change what they're doing. Yeah. And of course, we had birth to three matters umpteen years ago that everybody really liked. And I still use that. You know, if I need it for reference material. It's still a really great document, which I suppose leads us to think that back to the this isn't there isn't just one document that's going to help us there's going to be all sorts of stuff coming out in the next year that people need to read and inwardly digest and think about how they're going to implement those things next september i think that's the important part isn't it it's about pulling all the documents that are out there together and using all the tools that you have available to yourself to make the judgments that you need and it's getting back to that professional judgment really 
really using that. Yeah. Mm. It does say around this, this guidance isn't intended to, to box practitioners in, so they're not prescribing a certain pedagogy, curriculum or anything. It, it really frees people up along with not using the statements as a tick list. That's, I really think there's going to be quite a lot of work needed for teachers to have the confidence to not use it as a, as a tick list and for senior leaderships and map boards and all the rest of it, local authority advisors and so on to actually let go of that there's, there's quite a body of work that's going to be needed this year to move away from that no, I think that's, I, I do think that's the key thing. I think practitioners themselves are ready to let go of the tick lists, but there's that worry of what's my SLT, what my, what's the management, what are they going to ask for? And if I haven't got anything like a tick list, are they going to believe me? Um, there's still that niggling doubt. If Ofsted come in, are they going to ask to see my data, even though they've said a number of times they're not interested in the data? But there's all that, always that niggling da- doubt that, you know, they are going to and someone is going to ask for it. And if you haven't got it, what do you do then? Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. It requires so much more... <laughs> sector change i think to change that mindset of data being accumulated and looked at and and handed in and criticized and things like that and it's it's it requires a lot more development than just this document i think but i think this document is a great start in um changing people's mindsets about how they do that kind of assessment this is probably sorry Stephen. go on i was gonna say as well as sort of tick list culture I suppose another issue that's developed over the years is new teachers especially becoming too reliant on a document and that being their be all and end all and I can speak from experience as a primary trained teacher who arrived in early years and relied heavily on documents such as development matters because I hadn't had significant child development training when I did my PGCE or Um, And I think knowing what I know now, I wish I, I suppose, could have been advised slightly differently as to what would have been a really important starting point for me. Um, And to get back to basics and to think that these documents aren't the be all and end all, they really shouldn't be. They should support our practice, but they shouldn't be the only thing that we're looking at. That's that exactly. ties in with what I was sorry, Helen. I was just going to say that ties in with what I was going to say, Stephen, because I was just thinking that this is probably a good moment as well to acknowledge that as we're talking about the sector as a whole, the early years sector it is a sector that that is and has been underfunded. Um, good quality CPG can be really hard to find, can be really expensive. We've got you know practitioners who maybe don't feel so confident, and that's where a tick list can scaffold them, and then that over reliance can can become just totally embedded um, in, in, in a sector as a whole. Um, and that that's, that's where the opportunity for change needs to, needs to come about as well as documents that open up and allow this. That's very clear in the new development matters, isn't it? Um, 
Dr. Grenier said leaders also need to support curriculum development with cycles of professional de- development. They go hand in hand because some practitioners are going to have massive gaps in their knowledge. Mm. Stephen said, you know, child development isn't a huge part of much, <laughs> certainly post-grad. I did a PGCE, virtually nothing. Um, but they need to know more about how children develop and learn and the best ways that adults can help them and key skills and concepts and so on. But it's an ongoing thing. We're always learning when we're working with children. It, it doesn't stop. And I think the new development matters makes that pretty clear that this, this is just the beginning. I think, didn't Julian Grenier say this is the floor, not the ceiling, or it's just yeah, the yeah. very the first thing that you just read and then go off on tangents and read other stuff to improve your knowledge. And I think just because you've read it once, the stuff you're talking about, Helen, or attended that training once, doesn't mean that you're done then. I think especially if it's so important, the birth to three stuff, to inform your practice further down the line, especially like myself, if you're working with children with additional needs. But you might actually spend the next 10 years only working with three, four and five-year-olds. And just because you've studied it 10 years ago means nothing then, does it? You need to keep reading and keep Mm. learning and keep attending this training, even if it's repeating the same training every couple of years, just to get yourself genned up really and to remind yourself of those really early stages of development. Because if you're not doing it every day, it is going to disappear, that knowledge, and you, you need to sort of exercise your brain, don't you, and ensure that you are open to retaining that information, I suppose. And you need to discuss that with your colleagues as well, don't you? It's it's um, it's quite a, a solitary um, job reading about child development and watching webinars and stuff, but you really need to be talking about the specific children you're working with, with your colleagues, um, to get their perspective on things and to learn. I mean, that's how I learn. I opened up my own nursery being a primary teacher. I knew very little about two and a half year olds, even though I had a couple, my own. Um, and it was my NNEB with whom um, I set up the nursery that I learned so much from. She had so much better training than I did. And those first few years, you know, I really learned a great deal. So it's constantly talking about the children and, and using the expertise of your colleagues. So is play still the be-all and end-all then, do we think? Do we think we're, we're in danger of losing that focus on play? There's um, lots of stuff out there in social media about the general move towards more of a, of a teaching approach with our young children. Uh, can we still hang on to play with this new document? Is, is there still room for that, do you think? I, I th- think there's definitely a place for play. Um it all goes back to that knowing about child development, knowing that that's how they develop best or one of the best ways for them to develop their thinking and experiences and developing those experiences that they can sort of build on. It's There is a place for sort of adult-led things, but there always has been a place for adult-led uh, activities. But at the same time, if you were just to leave a child with a sand, a sand tray they most likely will do the same thing over and over and over again without an adult intervention there's, there's they don't tend to move on on their own as quickly that's that's been my finding anyway it's like you know they 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 may stay with the same because they're comfortable i think that's what i'm trying to say yeah they're comfortable with what they're doing they're happy 
and they haven't got those experiences to try and build on. And the document reinforces that, doesn't it? It says there's a whole section somewhere about play saying it's an essential part of the early years curriculum. And it identifies what you've just said, Ben, about it includes play, which is child led, freely engaged in. It's also includes play, which is sensitively supported and with interactions with staff. And there I say it, there's a bit of a teaching thing in there as well. Was it EPSI that said two thirds child led, one third adult directed? That's and that, I think that's mentioned in the document as well. So I think we, we, we can and we should hold on to the fact that play is the most important way in which children learn. But it doesn't mean, as Ben said, that you can't decide to teach children something. Mm. We mustn't be afraid of that. It's just got to be developmentally appropriate, isn't mm. it? And it also goes back to I think, when we spoke to Julie Fisher a few months ago. Um, and she said it's all about that sort of waiting um, watching and waiting before you just bowl in and sort of try and interrupt their play um, it's watching what they're up to thinking about how what are you going to add to their play if you go into it and are you actually allowing them to carry on with their play with your interaction or are you just steering them off into something completely different that they've got no interest in mm. um, and it's it's about that taking that time to think about what you're bringing to them yeah. and that was another mistake I made in the early days about children were generally playing free play and I would extract them to do the kind of focused activity of the yeah. morning and the, mostly my memory is of forcing little boys <laughs> to sit down doing handwriting stuff or that they weren't remotely interested in so that those boys that I'm thinking of are now about 23 so I, I hope they've forgiven me <laughs> some of them have graduated and they've done very well which I don't take for at all obviously but um, yeah I bet so they've got wonderful handwriting <laughs> <laughs> yeah or they type everything because they hate handwriting one or the other we all make mistakes don't we and and I learned that's not the best way of doing things you know if you want to I think I think that's where some of the criticism is born from you know the, the criticism that it's going to be too formalized and it's going to be too much like teaching is because people think that that the the teaching bit is going to be you know sat down at desks facing the front and not allowed to make any noise and they just have to listen to the teacher and things like that and I think that and it and it's not going to look like that really in the in the early years is it uh, it's going to look like how it's always looked like for you um and it depends on every other child you know so it is just about having that kind of awareness and that uh, professional judgment as to how you go about delivering that kind of formal teaching part to the children i suppose and that professional judgment it comes from it comes from your knowledge of child development doesn't it and it comes from your knowledge of that individual child so in that moment when you're waiting and watching like you said ben that julie fisher had said you know what what you're thinking about for that child how you might intervene or not what resources you might provide that's that's coming from your knowledge of child development in general and your knowledge of that small person who's in front of you so you really need to know your children that's something that you know every practitioner can do regardless of their level of experience they can know their children really really well I think it's important to say that you can teach a child something and that activity still to be child-led and child-initiated. The, the activity can be entirely of their choosing and it can go down a direction as well that is exactly where they want it to go. But I suppose the way that you model and the way that you... That's teaching and that's that's just 
I think it can be misconstrued as something that needs to be more formal than that, and it doesn't. But otherwise, what's the point of having all this knowledge if you are not going to uh, impact the learning of the children and, and to try and um, help them to learn more, I suppose. In, in the it's most that moment, isn't it? It's not, yeah, it's not forcing what you think they should learn on them at any point. It's it's very hard to put into words, isn't it? But it, it is that teachable moment. It's playful learning with children and then thinking, right, I'm going to teach them this bit because this is appropriate for that child at that time. And then they'll be able to use that in the future. It's, it's back down to professional skills again, isn't it? it? It doesn't mean that curriculum plans need to be inflexible and set in stone back to the long term, medium, short term, whatever their interests are. And, you know, this is the topic we're doing all about me or people who help us, all those old, old fashioned ways of, of setting up a, an early year setting. But it, they've got to be flexible, haven't they? And I think that, that might frighten people as they start to hear terminology around designing a curriculum and a mm. progression curriculum. That it's, I really hope that people are not going to take that and that becomes a, a burdensome task now, replacing the ticky listy. It's now going to be uh, designing your curriculum to the nth degree that you can't deviate from it, that, that's got to be nipped in the bud if indeed it started at all I think it might have done already <laughs> I mean I think it takes me back to as one of my first years in reception and uh, I just remember looking around one day and this boy who one of his relatives worked in a barber shop and he'd set up a whole barber shop in the middle of the classroom and the children were sitting down waiting for their turn to go and get their hair cut. Luckily there were no scissors um, <laughs> now involved in just finger scissors. But what we were able to do then was to say, you know, afterwards, have you paid for it? And they were like, oh, no. And then we started talking about money and they started then paying. And then there were other things. There would there'd be a shop opening and they would start using the money that they'd got for the barbershop. And the whole learning from that was what, you know, what they brought out. But without the adults coming into them and saying, asking that simple question, have you paid? they wouldn't have thought about it because it's not something they would tend to do. Yeah. Now, they go to get their haircuts. They don't tend to pay for it. They're grown up. That's yeah. <laughs> um, we had a very similar thing with a pizza hut shop that we set up in our nursery. That was just lent itself to fractions on the spur of the moment. I, I can't eat a full one. I just need half. Can I have mm. half of that? And this is granny and she can only eat a quarter. So do you know what a quarter is? Oh, it's a, so you can just, it's back to the teachable moment, isn't it? I didn't plan that. I don't think it wasn't written down on any um, short term or long term or medium term mm. plans at all. It just happened. And that's back to, back to the professional development and mm. training and learning and knowing your stuff. Isn't it? Which is easier said than done. Yeah. So the guidance in development matters. If if we were to describe it, how how do you think teachers and practitioners are going to use it? If they're not going to use it as a tick list, um, Ben, you're married to a reception teacher. How is yeah. and you were in fact a reception teacher until recently. How is she going to use these this new guidance? I mean, having spoken to her a lot about this, um, much to her disgust at the moment because she's got other things to try and sort out. I'm like, no, we are going to talk about it. Yeah, nobody um, needed it this year. Yeah. Um, I mean, she sees it as a as a real a real positive change because 
at the moment she feels that she has to go for, through the age bands with the children for the sake of data um, whether you know that's appropriate for the children or not she has to do that side of things she said it's not going to change so much on how she what she teaches but what it's she's going to be able to do is use the document to help spot any gaps or any children groups of children that need a bit more support um, and she's already looked at doing baselining um, with that in mind so she's basically just sort of gone through and said right well is this child in maths or in number are they where i'd expect a, a child to be at this point and if they're not she's put them sort of in a group where they can sort of help them and it's not intervention groups you know it's not anything like that it's about going to them in their play and informing the staff in the setting that they can actually support that child with their numbers so if they're playing with cars count out the cars help them understand oh can you give me three cars and little things like that but it's just again it's going back to those teachable moments but it's about having something readily available that helps you spot those children quickly and helps you put something in place for them quickly and I think that's going to be the biggest change. So is that based on um, what Julian Grenier was saying about just identify the children you have concerns about you don't need to do reams and reams of assessment for every child every teacher kind of knows well this group of children are fine as as you've just said they where I would expect them to be at this point in the year I think with a great curriculum and really good staff input those children will be fine these ones are real high flyers I need to you know really challenge them they're really getting on very well and this group of children I've got a few concerns about here there and everywhere and is, is the focus for your wife Ben going to be on those children initially so that she can yeah and I think especially this year you know this September you've got children that some of them haven't been to nursery some of them haven't for a long time um, some of them have a very different sort of circumstances coming up to joining school so the starting point was so so different and so by identifying those groups that need those support and a lot of it will be sort of in the PSED areas you know the children that haven't had much contact with other children recently like um, how they behave in, or not behave but how they sort of interact with their friends and things like that teaching them those those skills I think that's going to be the the biggest sort of advantage for her um, it's just about spotting those groups and helping them um. so if teachers can really start to reduce their assessment in that way what's the point of learning journals do you think and and we all work with tapestry so I, i'm not suggesting that nobody uses any learning <laughs> journals but if if the move is towards staff being with the children rather than recording what they're doing what's the purpose of an online or a paper-based learning journal I don't think the change um, changes the fact that they still need to be communicating with relatives. Mm. So I think that's one of the biggest benefits of doing things like that. And, you know, the, just the fact that they can compile it as a keepsake even. Uh, but yeah, the communication with relatives is even more important maybe now than ever. So I think that's, I, I agree. I think the assessment side of it is definitely going to change quite drastically which I think we're all happy about. Yeah. Um, I think you made a really good point, Ben, at the beginning, how actually teachers' day-to-day 
doings aren't going to change that much. I don't think what you do on a day with a child, what you teach in the year is going to change drastically because of the document, but what you do in the background, your baselines and your assessments is going to change massively. But I think communication with parents is more key than ever. So I think, you know, in regards to learning journals, that's still really valid. They're also, I'm sorry, I was just going to say they're also a, a, a record of your knowledge of the child, aren't they? Those observations that you make and it goes back to being selective about the observations that you make. So you're not making a billion observations about each child. You don't need to do that. But that those observations that you make are are careful they're thought out hopefully perhaps a return to those narrative observations um and they become a record of your knowledge of the child so they that links into what you said jack about you know that becomes then a a keepsake a development journey a learning story for families but also you can see that developmental journey very clearly then as a as a member of staff as well and it's a great um reflective Uh, activity for the practitioner as well Mm -hmm. to do that kind of thing to make those observations not only does it help you get to know the child but it's it's great for professional development because as you're making them you might be discovering oh actually i didn't notice that the first time and oh they didn't do that before and that's fantastic for subject knowledge and pedagogy and all that kind of stuff so that's another benefit i suppose and uh, i've always said you know there are two types of observations um on an online journals like tapestry there's the ones for assessment that in are, are for the practitioner and there are the ones for the families and i think the ones for the families just need to be very quick snapshots so the relatives just want to see what is their child doing um sort of doesn't need to go into reams of detail whereas an assessment one has always been for me it's something that i would put maybe a bit more detail into it because i'm going to use that to inform my planning i'm going to use it for the next steps for that child and everything like that and i think that's going to be i think it's key to keep those parental engagement ones going because they are so important because as we know a child is only with you in school or in a setting for about six hours a day. There's so many more hours when they're not with you that they're still needing to learn. You know, they still have those questions. They still have those thoughts. They still have those things they want to find out. So I think that's, it's helping the the parents to find out what they've been doing as well. So it, it sort of helps the child in the long run. I think... The most powerful thing for me when I was in leadership in a school and started using an online journal was the two-way communication and that concept that we can learn from home just as much about what this child likes to do, how confident they are in different scenarios, why, how they move at home, how they communicate at home. And it was so powerful to get the responses back from the parents and it informed teachers so much of what would be good ideas to try in class, um, particularly with children who had complex needs. It was so important to, um, to have good communication change both ways. And as Jack said, it's never been more important. And I'm a parent of a child in a reception class who hasn't actually really had a proper conversation <laughs> at the door of the classroom with the teacher yet and it's mid-October but for obvious reasons but I've had some amazing communication 
via an online journal. So I think, uh, and it's been so helpful for us as parents to feel that he's doing really well and he's really settled. Obviously, they can tell you so much, but it is amazing to see the evidence of that learning, which I suppose is the point really, isn't it? Yeah. We usually have great testimonials from parents, particularly um, parents of children in the early years, but we're starting to see Key Stage 1 and 2 now, that very same thing, because there's very little handover now and there's very little communication face-to-face between children and families and the teachers. It's really interesting from our point of view at Tapestry to see that the testimonials coming in now are very often from Key Stage 1 and 2 teachers saying the same thing, how nice it is to be in touch with families, particularly with home learning assignments and that kind of thing. So I think you're right, Jack, that this isn't going away. The, the communication between schools and settings <laughs> and parents is here forever, hopefully. Via, um, yeah, well, I don't think any document change is going to change that. You know, that's just a basic you know human thing isn't it you're going to want to know you're going to want to talk to the person looking after your child for half the day you know so i think that's always going to be there yeah the other thing i was thinking about um the assessment side of things is that children can make good use of assessment information if you share it with them so if you sat with a child and looked through their journal whether it's a paper one or an online one and uh, I suppose we're veering into the metacognition field now, but to talk about their learning with them so that they learn the vocabulary and the phrases to use when they're talking about their own learning. So I think there's there's huge scope for that, which maybe hasn't been tapped into yet. I know we've got the um, the child login that we've just introduced in Tapestry for slightly older children to be able to log in and add their own work and, and take more ownership of, of their journal um, that great research from UCL with Kate Cowan mm. flagged up that um, one of the criticisms of online journals is that it seemed to be stuff that was done to the child rather than with the child or by the child so I think uh, giving children access to the technology so that they can add to their own body of work is, is probably something that's going to be quite exciting in the future particularly with lockdown and, and the rest of it that's, that's that one. Um, Shall we go on to um, what we've done at Tapestry then for the New Development Matters journals? Maybe a bit of history might help with um, the last couple of years where I think many people have have used Development Matters document as a tick list, whether they wanted to or not. They've used it as as a crutch, as Jules said earlier on, um, perhaps for staff who have not had the appropriate training, perhaps because senior leaderships needed the data, all sorts of reasons. That wonderful development as the document was used in a really inappropriate way, despite on every page it's saying not using it as a tick list. So, so we were at this stage, weren't we, a few months ago? Um, so when the new development matters came in with a very different structure, we at Tapestry and the Foundation Stage Forum thought, right, this is going to be a great opportunity to really support this move away from tick lists and data and reducing staff assessment. Anyone want to take over from me at that point? Um, well, I was just going to read out because the new Development Matters has a very similar statement about it not being a tick list. So I was just going to read it out. The, the document is not a tick list for generating lots of data. You can use your professional knowledge to help children make progress without needing to record lots of next steps. Settings can help children make progress without generating unnecessary paperwork. Yeah. So it's also very clear, just like the old Development Matters was, about this not requiring lots of data 
being very thoughtful about the assessments that you make. You know, I think there are little statements in the new DMs about, you know, think about will this assessment be useful um, so that when you're actually collecting any any kind of um, source about what your children are doing that you're really thinking about what you're wh- why you are you collecting this what are and you moving, noticing and moving away from that identifying gaps i mean we've had many i would say thousands now of support tickets over the years saying i don't want to use it as a tick list but i want to see where the gaps are well in my view that is using it as a tick list and I can't think of that in any other way I'm ticking the things that I know this child can do so I can see the things that they don't do or can't do and they're the gaps and I'm going to teach to them so that is a tick list and we've had quite heated discussions over the years with various people about that so okay so when we designed our new development matters for tapestry which hopefully won't be too long before it's released um, does anyone want to discuss how we came up with the idea and what the approach was? I think it, it, our conversations really went to how can we help practitioners to find those gaps uh, without ticking, because that's what people want. And it went back to that whole finding the groups of children that need those supports. So we talked about instead of being able to tick the statements um, in each pathway, what we said, or no, sorry, for each area, just being able to flag it. So you can say, right, so this observation is about literacy. um, And that is all you have to do. And then what we said we would do then is for the, the tracking side of things, just have the option to say in that area, this child is where they should be developmentally. No, they're not where they should be developmentally or further discussions. And we felt that further discussion one was a really vital part because actually it, it's about those discussions that you have with your, your colleagues that's going to really open up the change, sort of what you bring in for your curriculum and things like that and help help those children. So I think for the data-wise, all you're going to have is these groups of children that you're then supporting and everything you'll be able to say well these children are where they should be and it's i I understand the the worry that people have from their slt how can i show progress you know i know that is a big big thing especially in schools but i think what you'll be able to show with this is that actually i had this group over here who needed the support and actually now through my planning and through my curriculum and by identifying them early on i've been able to say they are now where they should be developmentally and that is your progress you've you've closed that gap if you want to go to use that phrase closing the gap <laughs> yeah and i think if if you're worrying about ofsted specifically i think in my experience ofsted the two important things that they wanted to see were have you identified those children early on the ones that need support and what have you put in place to help them and that's what what we've tried designed the whole thing around and i think that's the two most important things so hopefully that will kind of cover that side of it as well yeah so the pupil progress meetings that teachers have on a termly basis will be more around a narrative description of those individual children or groups of children rather than sheets and sheets of percentages mm. and 
data. So those conversations are going to be much more interesting for both parties, I think. I was um, a governor and used to attend some of those people progress meetings, and I just used to glaze over sheets and sheets of pie charts and mm. Excel stuff, which when you don't know the children as um, as a governor, you know, I only went in probably two or three times a term. I didn't really know those children that well. It, it was a completely pointless exercise, I think. Um, mm. It didn't reassure me as a governor that things are going well. And so I think, I think those conversations are going to be much more meaningful. It's very much like performance management, you know, and you said, right, tell me a percentage of children that are going to get to GLD at the end of the year. Okay. 70%. No, that's not high enough. Okay. 75%. Okay. That's all right. What, what about that? What about that 25% that haven't got it? Are you worried about them or are you just worried about this number on a spreadsheet? And that's all it became. It was just 75%. That's your target, say. You know. It didn't matter which children that 75% was. No, no. And they, there was no sort of, this is what you're going to do for those 25%. Um, and that's when it became ridiculous, I think, because it was just a number plucked out from nowhere. Um, and there was no real, I, I felt there was no real benefit to having that number. Actually, if you want to me to tell you how many children I want to get to GLD, it's 100%. But what am I going to do to make sure that all children get to it? And, you know, that's that's what it should be about. And the most efficient way of doing that is is identifying the ones that you're worried about to begin with. Yeah. It's Which hugely is what the important did. that senior leadership teams find alternative ways to carry out these exercises, whether it be performance management or data collection. And to be honest, until every setting has had an Ofsted inspection and they can trust in themselves that they are not going to get asked those questions, it is very recent history that Ofsted were going in and asking to see that stuff. So it's quite understandable that there's a level of nervousness. Um, I went through this process. What's happening in early years now is sort of mirroring what happened in the world of special education a few years ago where P scales were removed and there was so much nervousness. Well, how do we show progress then if we can't refer to the P scales? And uh, what are we going to tell Ofsted? And it took a little bit of time, but I think schools have generally got round to the idea that you don't need to talk about data. You need to be able to tell the story of that child's learning, which is sort of what Helen was saying, really, that narrative of can we get back to those basics of being able to communicate to parents, to senkos, to leadership teams within our own team? Can we all talk about what this child has learned since they came into our room and how we have influenced that learning? And that has to be the crux of it, really, doesn't it? And and if we have not influenced that learning, what are we going to do differently? And what are we going to change? And what additional support are we going to give? And who are we going to ask to come and help us? And it has to be getting back to that, really, I think. And realistically, as a parent, as a senior leader, they're the things that I want to know. I want. I don't want to hear that my child's made forty percent progress within a level. Or so. Who cares? Um, and the difference being a deputy head. Then it was hugely different for me when I started having those conversations with teachers and support staff about what a child's learning looked like, as opposed to what I'd been doing for years and years about well, they've made fifty percent progress through this. 
Because then when I spoke to the parents, I genuinely knew what they'd learned that year. And if I was sat in a review meeting or a progress meeting, I could contribute knowing that I actually know something about what this child has done this year and how our input as a school had affected that um, and how the parents' input had affected that and how that mentality of working together for the sole purpose of progress for that child and what, what that progress what, what was important about that progress, I suppose, and how child-centred it was and how um, valuable it was, really. It's interesting because it comes... Sorry, Helen. No, it, it comes back to the, you know, like, who are we doing this data for? And, and you mentioned, you know, obviously your experience as a parent, Stephen. I remember when I was a teacher and I used to do parents' evenings, I always used to start every meeting with a question to them, which is, what do you want to know? And 90% of the time, it was the two questions. It was, what have they been up to? And are they happy? And I think that's the two things that parents want to know. So they don't want, they don't want to know percentages and they don't want to know numbers. They want to know those two things. And you can do that by having a very frank, honest discussion with them. And, and I think that's, that's the crux. And that's what this shift in documentation is trying to move towards. I think you're absolutely right, Stephen. Not only do senior leaders have to trust their staff without requiring data, um, they need to start to trust Ofsted. And with that in mind, we contacted Jill Jones and Wendy Ratcliffe at Ofsted and Julian Grenier, who until recently we've not spoken to um, until the document came out and asked them to reassure teachers and early years practitioners that this was in fact a um, fact that Ofsted do not want to see data. Um, Julian's offered many alternative ways of, of showing progress for children. So for our listeners now, if you haven't listened to those conversations with Jill, Wendy and Julian, now's the time to hop over and listen to those ones on our podcast. But I think you're right, Stephen, it's over the next few months as Ofsted perhaps start doing inspections again after Christmas. Let's hope that 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 is the truth and that schools and settings who are having offset inspections um, are confirming that, that, yeah, they didn't want to see data. They just wanted to talk to the staff about the children and it's all okay. And that will filter through hopefully. And so by next September, people will have the confidence that, that this can, they can drop it. So does anyone want to talk about the reference material box that we've, that we're adding to tapestry and, and how that will help um, teachers and practitioners? I suppose it sort of links to CPD in some ways, doesn't it? That is the backdrop to all of this is about professional knowledge and professional judgment. And we can't be naive enough to think that every setting has got this group of practitioners who have had wonderful training and wonderful experience in the past. So um, I suppose it's a small way for us to support practitioners on this next step of their assessment journey I suppose so we're trying to give them a little bit of information to go off which might be sections of the new document the new development matters it might be pointing them in the direction of some child development material um, internally on the foundation stage forum or externally on a recognized sort of trusted website um, and that's something that we're hoping to build on in time really that reference material so that we can support practitioners to make 
accurate judgments about the children and to say, be confident that they can say, yes, this child is doing absolutely fine. And so I've been touched on it before, but I think obviously in reception class, you've got these children who are some of them a year different in age. So it's not reasonable. We all know it's not reasonable for a child who's just turned four to be at the same level as the child child who's just turned five so it's we need to be able to say well yeah as a professional I know that that is very typical for some for a child who's three turning four and I'm really confident that they're going to be fine um, but just as important is being able to identify that yes he has just turned four but by this age I would expect him to be able to do that I would expect him to have a bit more confidence with his communication or socially. I would expect him to be ready for working with another child or playing alongside another child. So I think it's having that confidence, but what we're doing on Tapestry hopefully is giving some guidance, but again, we're not naive enough to think that that is the be all and end all. It is so important that that conversation about CPD is at the forefront over the coming years, in the early years, in my opinion. Definitely. And there is a lot of information out there. You know, there's a lot of information for both sides of every argument. Um, and with everything, it's always important to read up and make your own mind up. Um, I think that's the, the really important part is to sort of read both sides of any argument and yeah. any guidance and stuff like that and make, yeah, go with it. Yeah, I think whatever the viewpoint is, it sounds very kind of cliched, but we have the child's interest at heart, really. Whatever view you have, everyone thinks play is really important in the early years. Everyone wants to start from the child. We also want them to learn and progress and we want them to be happy and fulfilled with happy parents we're all aiming for that I think aren't we and the last few years of, of staff being so overwhelmed with expectations for collecting assessment data has got to change teachers got enough on their plates particularly at this time um, to just get rid of all that angst thanks for listening to this episode of the FSF and Tapestry podcast if you want to be notified when we post new episodes make sure to subscribe <laughs>